Heavy Cardboard, episode 142, City of the Big Shoulders. Coming to you from the World's Fair Hotel in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Martin, slightly worried to be staying in the World's Fair Hotel. <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know, World's Fair Hotel is a reference to the World 1893 World's Fair. Uh, took place in Chicago, um, also known as uh, the Murder Castle, i.e. H.H. Holmes. Uh, infamous, I guess, yeah, infamous hotel that he had uh, built that he was one of the first serial killers uh, uh, here in the U.S., so... Yeah, if you've uh, come, uh, the good, the book to recommend on this is The Devil in the White City, which is a really good book. Amazing but, book. It describes both the World's Fair and how they planned it all out, and at the same time what this serial killer do, was doing, and then the, the investigation to track him down. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. To, it, as much as I'm intrigued or interested or fascinated by the story of H.H. H. Holmes, I am equally, if not more so, interested in how they erected a temporary city for the World's Fair, the White City, mm. that I we were talking right before we started recording, that if we had a, a, a time-traveling machine, if I did, that would be one of the places that I would, would want to go and see. Because to me, they made it sound like just the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life i would have loved to have seen what that temporary city looked like yeah those world those big world fairs that they did in those days were, were quite something by all accounts not that we would know because we're not that old we're old but we're not that old <laughs> so uh happy thanksgiving i guess a belated happy thanksgiving to everybody by the time you're hearing this since uh joel said he was going to edit it the day after uh, black friday a uh, day after thanksgiving we're recording it the day before thanksgiving so happy thanksgiving hopefully everybody uh, is having a good holiday spending time with friends family eating good food not getting too tired of friends and family yada yada Etc. Uh, some updates on things that are going on here at HCHQ. First and foremost, I have decided to not attend PAX Unplugged this year. No particular reason other than I just kind of want to do the show and not go to another convention. It PAX Unplugged is amazing. Plus, the places they have to eat that's right across, it might be like Union Station or something. It's just a bunch of little uh, stalls. With different types of food. It's amazing food in there. Hmm. And PAX Unplugged is a fantastic convention. I, I've had a blast. Well, I guess last year was my only time going to it. And probably will go again in the future. But just decided, nope, I've had enough for the year. That's it. So not going to PAX Unplugged. Uh, on the flip side of things, though, uh, HeavyCon 6, the hotel was booked, signed, sealed, delivered today so yeah so excited to get that uh off of the backlog of things to do so now it's just a matter of sending out invitations and that whole deal that'll be happening sometime between now and christmas so more on that later as things go along 
for those that are interested, poker update. November has not been kind. Ever since I said, uh, I pretty much jinxed it. I've been on a horrible downswing in November. Haven't played a ton, but uh, when I did play, I would get kicked in the teeth. And Encore Boston Harbor here in town has had a really amazing promotion going on uh, for the month of November from noon to 10 p.m. Monday through Friday. Uh, high hand in the room for Hold'em uh, gets you paid $1,000 every 20 minutes. That's pretty strong. Mm. That's that's really good. So that's what, 30 grand a day they're giving away? And then today, they 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 doubled it. And for the last day of the promotion, $2,000 every 20 minutes they were giving away for high hand. Uh, it was insane. I went for a couple of hours just because... I mean, it's free money if potentially you hit it. Uh, had a good session. Uh, I'm officially out of the downswing. I've put together a couple of good sessions. But the the important thing or the memorable thing out of today, other than winning a couple buy-ins, was to have a high hand. Uh, it's got to be aces full of deuces or higher. And it's got to hold up until the time eclipses. Well, uh, I got into a three-bet pot with pocket queens against what ended up being pocket kings. And the flop came queen, queen, six. That's pretty good, seeing as I flop quads. That's really, really good, four of a kind. Uh, I checked, he shoved all in, I snap called, and as soon as I called, I looked at the dealer and said, call the floor. I tabled my hand, I showed that I had four of a kind, and the guy who, who uh, Josh, who was my opponent, he's a dealer out at uh, MGM Springfield, about an hour and a half away. Apparently, there was a 24-hour bug going on in the Springfield area, i.e. most of the dealers called in sick so hmm. that they could drive the 90 <laughs> minutes to come play for the promotion. Funny that. Yeah, weird how that worked. Uh, he was he was a good sport about it, though. And so I actually hit the high hand with seven and a half minutes to go. And I'm Yay. like, I'm not going to say that the money was spent. It wasn't because I had seven and a half minutes to go. But... Two grand is two grand, right? It's free money on top of the, you know, 350 or so that I won in a pot. And I have never seen a slower clock move in my entire <laughs> life as this thing just inches down. And it's on all the TVs. So I look up and it's like 530. I look back up what felt like four minutes and it's like 520. And I'm like, come on. I felt like that scene from uh, Risky Business where the, the, the clock actually moved backwards. Long story long, with about two and a half minutes to go, uh, dealers and players, we have a new high hand. Mm. Oh, that hurts. I'm not going to lie. Uh. But what hurts worse is it was quad queens with a jack kicker. So literally there was nothing I could have done there. Like I couldn't have bet mm -hmm. earlier to a per No, they just, it just so happened. But what did kind of make me feel a little bit better after that is with about 30 seconds to go, somebody got quad Kings to then supplant the quad Queens that beat me. So I basically had no shot at it, but for about five minutes, I was thinking, Oh, Come on, one time. <laughs> Alas, it didn't hold. But had a good session, and then you and I had, uh, you, me, and Cindy had a wonderful dinner this mm -hmm. evening, and here we are. So thanks, everybody, for hanging out. I know it's been a while since we've done a proper review episode, so hopefully uh, you guys are enjoying yourselves, and maybe we're keeping you company on your traveling home from Thanksgiving or just maybe on a commute to work. But nonetheless, appreciate you all hanging out. That said, it is a board gaming podcast, but but 
the one thing that you were lamenting before we get into that was you've had renovations going on for about 14 years, right? Yeah, yeah. So we started, uh, well, we started seriously in April um, and we had to move out of the house at Memorial Day, which is end of May. And we're still out waiting to hopefully move back in in, I'm told, a couple of weeks, maybe. So February. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's been a long and frustrating process, and it's been particularly bad the last couple of days. I haven't even been able to get into my office because they've been doing floors. But it'll, you know, it'll be over eventually. And it will be worth it, so people say, right? So I'm keep being told it will be worth it, yes, uh, but we shall see. You know, and I made the joke at dinner that, you know, a year from now, you'll joke, you'll laugh about this. Cindy, Cindy didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm excited to see when it's finally finished because I've seen it with no walls. I've seen it with partial walls. Now I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it actually finished. Yeah, look forward to the uh, housewarming that we'll have. Yeah, that should be a good time. All right. So seriously, it is a board gaming podcast. Probably ought to talk about board games. So what you've been playing lately, sir? So we uh, got away from all the construction last weekend to go down to a friend of ours on Cape Cod. They've uh, He's an architect, and they built this very lovely modern house with a huge picture window overlooking a marsh. Um, you can kind of watch the tide go up and down in there. And I the mean, that's the whole point of living on the Cape, right, yeah. is stuff like that. Yeah, really lovely. Um, and they are occasional gamers, and they'll, they'll tackle quite serious games i mean i've taught them agricola and power grid in the past i mean they'll 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 get into a meaty game so i took some games down weren't sure whether we would because we did like to go out and walk a bit but uh, on saturday evening when it got night um they fancied a game and so i pulled out pax premier second edition how'd that go over it went over really quite well although it wasn't a very good showing of the game how so? Because um, we uh, pretty much right away, uh, very quickly, we got into a situation where two of us were Russian, two of us were British, and that alliance stayed throughout the entire game, um, which is quite unusual. And we only had two scoring rounds, and there were both card collisions of the two scoring cards both appearing in the market together. So it was a bit. I felt a bit kind of awkward that they didn't really see how that game can operate in its richness when you've got the shifting alliances and everything. Um, but they still very much enjoyed it. Um, I was a magnificent teacher, failing to score a single point. Oh, well done, well done. <laughs> um, and Anne uh, pulled up, managed to win both of the um, of the uh, scoring things, so she got a comfortable victory. Um, but I, I think they could get at least some sense of the quality of that game. Good. So it's uh, something that could hit the table again when you guys visit Yeah, and, and it's nice and easy to teach. They, they commented that they thought it was definitely not one of the more complicated games I'd taught them. And, uh, I mean, I, I every time I play the game, I love how it works so differently each time. And although this was kind of disappointing in that it didn't show its full flower, um, I, it was still just a fascinating game. It's the first time I've seen two coalitions, all the blocks, completely empty um, as we were com- competing for power on the map. I mean, it was quite something. That's And kind of like what you said, every game that I've played of that has played out completely different, which is a credit to the design, I think. Yeah. Good stuff. What else did you guys get played well, there? The other, the other game is, is a game that doesn't really get mentioned much on, on this show, but is a big favorite of mine, which is Dominion. I haven't played Dominion in a while, but I'm a fan of it. I enjoy it. I'm terrible at it. I've never won it, but I enjoy it. I mean, the thing I like about Dominion is it fits in so many different settings, right? You you want a, a, a lunchtime game that you can play in less than an hour? Yeah, you can do a hand of Dominion like that. You want to play 
a game as a feature game all evening. I've known there was this group on the North Shore that would once a month have a Dominion-only game night. And the people there pretty much only ever played Dominion. But there's so much variety in that game. You can have four or five hands of Dominion in a night, and it's interesting. And I like that flexibility. And we had a couple of hands. And, um, I mean, it's just a nice, fun, enjoyable game. And, again, you've got enormous difference. In that case, because of the way the Kingdom's cards lay out, you've always got a lot of variety. Um, the second one was particularly weird. I ended up with nine province cards in my hand out of the 12 uh, you can get. Never had that many of them before. Hmm. My struggle with Dominion is trashing cards. I'm terrible about trashing cards. And I, in any kind of deck builder, which kind of is not good in deck builders, you want a thin, efficient deck. I, I go by the uh, oh fatter is better deck yeah not not a good not a good strategy. Ironically, promenade. However, I've actually done an exceptionally good job mm. of thinning my deck. So maybe I'm learning. So maybe I'll be competitive <laughs> the next time I try uh, Dominion. On my end, uh, a couple of big games, I guess you could say. Uh, Age of Steam uh, finally saw the finished uh, production version of Age of Steam, and. All right. And so there's uh we played the Switzerland map. It was a four player and we played it live on stream, having it being all four of us the first time we'd played it. I've obviously have played Aegis Theme countless times at this point, but first time playing the Switzerland map. That is a hard map. It is really uh constricted and very difficult as far as track lays lessons were learned in that game. I won't uh, give any kind of spoilers, <laughs> but there were definite uh, lessons learned and overall really enjoyed the map. Plus it's age of steam. I mean, always right. Yep. Then dominant species uh, finally streamed this one. We did it in honor of the, the passing of Chad Jensen um, designer of dominant species, combat commander, fighting formations, welcome to Centerville, the upcoming dominant species Marine and uh, a number of other games. And yeah, cancer sucks. And, uh, we lost, we lost Chad to cancer. So we sent our condolences to his wife, Kai, as well as, uh, the folks over at GMT who he was close to, and let them know uh, that we were going to be streaming it, and that seemed to be really well received. That was that was pretty cool. I didn't expect the turnout to be what it was, uh, but it was cool to to see so many people who absolutely love Dominant Species, and you should. It's an amazing game, but uh, but yeah, that that went really well. Plus, Dominant Species is always a blast. I love 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 that game. So mm. it's been a good week when you get two of at least what has been your top five games of all time played yep. in the same week. That's strong week. That's pretty That's good. good. Yeah. That, no, no arguments there. Uh, going backwards in time from there, I'd mentioned promenade. Um, yeah, we, uh, streamed that. Um, that was, uh, that was an interesting game. Again, deck builder, um, combined deck builder with, um, a sort of market mechanism. Um, I quite liked how that fit together and it was, Good to new news as well, but it's actually getting picked up for distribution in the U.S. and under a different name. Yep, Rio Grande Games is is picking it up. Uh, what did they art Deco with the Deco being D E C K O uh, coming out second quarter twenty twenty? Which 
I got to be honest. I think I've played that game now four times. And I said this on the stream that every time I play that game, I'm excited to play it again, which that bodes well for a mm. game, honestly, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, beautiful artwork. I like the art direction that Rio Grande's taken it in as well. So I like mm. them uh, for different reasons, but both aesthetically pleasing. And the game just, it plays surprisingly quickly and it's just enjoyable. It's just one of those games. Uh, it fits in that same time frame, maybe a little bit longer than a Dominion or and definitely longer than like a, a race for the galaxy type game. But I really, really have enjoyed uh, my plays of Promenade so far. Yeah, I mean, so it's a simple deck building mechanism and your deck consists of a mix of effectively treasure cards with coins and paintings. And uh, depending on how many people buy paintings or exhibit paintings, the value of different kinds of paintings goes up. So your deck increases in power as the game goes because the paintings are increasing in value. Um, and that uh, makes for a nice little mechanic. And uh, I, as I said, nice, nice game. Very easy to teach. Quite fun to play. I was a little. My only question mark is whether there's enough variation in the prices of the different kinds of paintings. Um, both times I've played, they've, they've, there's been a very small spread. Um, but I'm told that you know people have seen a w wider spread, and it would be interesting to get some more games in to get a sense of that. And I've yet to play with any of the expansion stuff, and I, so I'm not 100% sure what all that brings to the table, but looking forward to exploring that as well. So going... Continuing backwards, uh, last weekend, weekend before, whatever it was, the magnet. Well, we played a, a number of games, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the list here because this is has the. Uh, I got that list off my uh, journal logs, so that I, I actually know that they're up to date. Um, so uh, we tried board game cafe frenzy at that one, so which that is it's uh, from designer City Low, same uh, designer and publisher, the Wood Game uh, Wood Games as uh, a pleasant journey to Neko. Okay, and uh, I don't think five player is is where that that game's going to sing. I think that's putting it nicely. I it's funny when we started playing the game, I I think abjectly hated the game is a good place to start how I felt mm -hmm. about it. As the game progressed, I was like, oh, actually, I'm kind of enjoying this. Okay, wait, no, it's not that bad. I shouldn't say not that bad. I'm actually enjoying it. However, the turn order mechanism in that game is fiddly. Yes. And it destroys the flow of the game. Yes especially in a five-player game. Now, we've only played it the one time, and that was a learning game and that whole deal. Five-player, yeah, not, 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 not the player count that I would recommend. I will say this. When I mentioned that we'd played it and I tweeted about it, uh, City Low actually responded and said, yeah, I like it best at three players because I design games for because I play a lot with three players. I was like, oh. Oh, mm. All right. Yeah, probably ought to do that. So we're going to try it again at three players a couple more times. And I imagine the the game will sing considerably better because I don't think that the flow of the game will be broken up as much as it was uh, in the five player game from the turn order machinations that that go on constantly in a five player. Game. Yeah, the, the game comes in two parts. The first part, you draft cards um into your hand as it were and then in the second part you have a trick taking using the hand and there's some quite interesting 
funkiness in there. I mean, it's a trick-taking game where you're not allowed to follow suit. Right, and it's not <laughs> trick-taking in the sense that you're not like trying. You're not making bids for right. tricks or anything like that. It's it's okay. It's it allows you the depending on what card you play will dictate potentially what cards you then can claim to put into your tableau and build up your tableau, right. and it gives you uh, a little bit of. Uh, kind of a set collection mini game within mm-hmm. that as well as some other things that it's an interesting take on a trick taking mechanism that isn't a trick taking game right yeah but i mean the thing is the turn order thing because between in the drafting stage everybody kind of drafts one card and then you recalculate turn order and it's complete recalculation turn order it's not just somebody going first and everybody going around the circle it's the order difference and then after every trick you do a complete recalculation of turn order again it's not just the leading player leads to the next trick it's the complete turn order changes around and trying to keep that in straight means it's just horribly gums up the flow right now it would be interesting to see in free players whether that makes a lot um, more reasonable play for it but uh, yet five oh it was i was definitely not ever getting a great deal of fun out of it i'm afraid yeah and when you think about it at three players you're either going clockwise or counterclockwise oh that's a whole lot easier yeah. so that makes actually a whole lot of sense that okay can it play five yes would I ever recommend this game at five? I can't see it based on that. But yeah, really legitimately excited to try it at three when you stop and think it's clockwise or counterclockwise. It makes it a whole lot easier. So that was Board Game Cafe Frenzy. More to come on that as we go along. I I realized that we were looking for something that can play five or six of us. I couldn't remember, six. but that played relatively quickly. That's a short list of games that isn't like a party game. And I was like, Hey, what do y'all think about Paris connection? And a whole lot of folks said, Oh, I haven't played that yet. And I just hung my head in shame. <laughs> I felt like I had let you people down. So we busted out Paris connection. What'd you think of it? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's another of the, the cube rails genre. So you're doing some, there is a kind of simple company investing mechanic combined with laying track routes, but you're not laying track, you're just popping cubes on hexes and then stringing them together. I mean, I played the Sioux line, which is another cube rails game before. Which is definitely a more complex right. uh, version of, or of the cube rail system. And, and, and this was a more straightforward game than that, and uh, I really quite enjoyed it. Uh, and the fact that you've got a game that plays quickly with six like this and is a fun game reminded me, of course, of a different, and definitely not a Cube Rails game, but a Rails game, which is Transamerica, um, which again plays really fast uh, and quite fun for quite a large number of people. Okay, I haven't played it, so mm. interesting. We'll fix that one of our lunchtime streams, because right. that, that is a super little game. Okay, there you go. So Paris Connection went well. I, everybody seemed to really enjoy that, uh, so that was good. And we also broke out a game that should hit the table more than it does, that never seems to, even though the box stays here in the studio on the shelf, and that's Glory to Rome. We are fortunate enough to have uh, access to Jess's copy of the Black Box Edition. I can't believe I've had like four copies of this game and have sold it every time. (laughs) I really want to get a copy of this game to hold on to because 
I really, really like Glory to Rome, and you'd never played this. No, no, I'd heard about it a lot. I'd never played it. I hadn't even watched the, the, the stream. I, I keep it, It's been sitting on my iPad for ages to watch, and I and didn't actually watch the uh, stream of it. So, yeah, I, I can see why it's such a, a fun game. I mean, it, it's weirdly hard to get your head around. I did very much, I have played Motanai about a year or so ago. Which is a, a kind of a riff, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, Carl Chudik. Very had- similar. I could, I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between the two games based on you know playing both of them a year apart, kind of thing. They seemed like the same game to me. I'm sure they're not, um, but they they have a hell of a lot in common. And I've never played Montanai yet. Oh, I saw it downstairs in the shrink. Yes, so I, yeah, yeah. It's one that I would like to try because I like Glory to Rome. I don't personally have, you know, Glory to Rome. So, yeah, I'm curious to be able to compare and contrast. Well, that's another lunchtime stuff. game then, isn't it? We could probably get two of them in, in the lunchtime oh. uh, thing with Mott and I because it's really fast playing. That's good. Yeah, I uh, I tag team with Andrew. Andrew showed up uh, game day a little bit late as we were going. I was like, hey, have you played this? He's like, uh, it's been a while. I was like, come on, we'll team up. Didn't go well for us, but we had fun. So <laughs> I guess there is that. Uh, going backwards in time a little bit more, The Magnificent. I enjoyed it more my last play than I had my previous plays. I'll say that. What'd mm. you think of it? Oh, wow. It's going back in time now, isn't it? I should have looked at my notes before we came out. Said, what did I think of the Magnificent? Um, it was, there was a bit too much going on for its, for its weight for me. Um, the rules were a bit too complicated for what you got back. And the theme was kind of not there, really very, very thin. And the setting just didn't seem to, do anything for the game the dice drafting mechanism i i like the idea mm. in which you're adding dice of various colors and if you add dice of the same color or the wild clear color then that pip value adds to the existing pip value of other dice which makes it more powerful actions but you do have a cost or an upkeep cost for those dice that you draft there for a while when we were leading up to streaming it, I'd played it a number of times and I was thinking, uh, kind of the, the meh instead of magnificent. And I've seen people rave and rave and rave about this game. And ultimately I enjoyed it more than I had in my earlier plays, but is it something that I'm going to be clamoring to get off the shelf to play more? No. I don't think so. I think it's a a fine midweight euro deck dra- or a, a, a die drafting game or dice drafting game. However, for its weight, you put a gun to my head, and what game would I rather play? Yin Yang, or yes. as we would as we would call it normally, Yin Yang. Yep. Uh, that has been one of the pleasant surprises of the Essen Hall so far. Yeah, you, uh, do we uh, we played it what the day after you came back from Essen or something. Yep, and uh, played it on stream and yeah, a really sweet little. It, to me, it's that's exactly what that kind of occasional game should be. To me, an occasional game is a game you're not going to play um, all the time. You're gonna it's going to sit on your shelf. You'll pull it off the shelf maybe once or twice a year if you're lucky, and so it, you've got to be able to teach it quickly. And learn the rules and quickly get into the game and absorb it. And it's that balance of getting the right 
uh, complexity so that it's interesting but not too complicated to pick up. It's nice to have a theme. You don't have to have a theme, I think, for a game like that. Yin Young, I think, really did hit that balance just nicely. The other thing about it over something like The Magnificent that uh, that's made it stand out for that for me is it's also a much more interactive game. The Magnificent is definitely a good game for someone who wants to do their own thing and not really be bothered too much by what everybody else is doing. There's a little bit in the dice drafting and everything, but it pretty much is, okay, who who works their puzzle better right. for, for the most part. Plus, there's some on the traveling and getting tense, but I would say overwhelmingly, yes, it's multiplayer solitaire most of the way, whereas Yin Yang, yep. less so. And with Yin Yang, you're on the map. You are you begin the game in a in a not really interfering with anybody else, but towards the end of the game, you're absolutely interfering with everybody else. Um, the setting is really nicely done with the Chinese setting. The little tortoise shell with the coins, it's just pure fluff, but it it makes that setting come out and uh, give you much more of a of a of a sense of what the game can be and and, and a real nice tactile quality to it it's, it's easy to underestimate those things particularly when you're heavy gamers like us but again for an occasional game in particular having that kind of character i think really helps make the game stand out and be interesting yeah totally agree with all of that all right some other games that i've gotten to the table over the last couple of weeks uh that you may or may not have played already formosa t which i feel bad that you haven't played this yet since it features the production the harvesting and production of you know formosa t which i'm currently drinking right uh in oolong and uh, you know etc well i guess formosa is technically in oolong but you get the idea formosa tea i would say i would put up there with a yin yang as far as pleasant surprises coming out of essen thus far um i'm still waiting on uh the rest of the the boxes to arrive but more on that in a little bit but formosa tea really pleasantly surprised at how much uh how much game is in that game hmm. uh yeah really enjoyable it's definitely a step up from a from a you know just standard midweight yin yang rococo level game but but really enjoyable mm -hmm. uh, nova luna is a the latest from uve rosenberg that apparently takes uh the mechanism from habitats which i haven't played but the people i'd played with had played and they compared them. Um, it's a two player or two to four player abstract. I think it's better as a two or three player personally, uh, but really enjoyed our plays of uh, this game where you're essentially just drafting tiles going around uh, the, the, the moon phase, if you will, but it's just a track and whoever's furthest behind gets to then draft next. And you're drafting tiles from the outside of this selection area. And the value of that tile dictates how many spaces you move along the turn order track. So then it, whoever's furthest behind takes their next turn. Could be the same player multiple times. But what you're doing is you're taking these tiles, putting them uh, orthogonally adjacent to existing tiles in your tableau. And it basically is a simple form of recipe fulfillment. It shows, oh, you need two blue tiles uh, orthogonally adjacent to this tile. And when you do, you take one of your markers and you cover that that recipe or that goal. And whoever gets rid of all of their markers first wins the game. I'm not necessarily super good at this game, but I, I enjoyed it. I hmm. didn't love it. I don't think it's 
as good as uh, of a two-player type abstract as a Shobu or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy my play of it nonetheless. Uh, no thanks. Simple filler that always is a good time. That was a, a filler played at uh, at Joe's house uh, at the end of the night after playing Yukon Airways. So Yukon Airways was one of the games that I was on my to check out list at Essen. And I checked it out and passed over it. And somebody was like, hey, you want to play Yukon Airways? I was like, sure, I'll give it a try, right? Yeah, it's a one and done for me. Um, there was nothing necessarily wrong with the game. However, universally, out of all of us, we, it was me, Eric Brocious. Um, it was Dan from Opinionated Gamers and a nice gentleman by the name of Bill playing this game. And all of us, by the end of the game, thought, wow, this is extraordinarily tactical, meaning you have a hand of cards and for all intents and purposes, you're using that entire hand of cards to be able to take your actions that turn. So then for your next turn, depending on what dials you have moved up, this and that, you're going to draw some number of cards Hmm. and be able to keep some number of those cards. Maybe all of them, maybe less. But the problem is you can't plan from turn to turn because you're essentially using up your entire hand of cards. So at the beginning of every round, everybody draws their cards and then, okay, let's look at our cards and try and figure out what it is that individually we're all going to try and do. Talk about breaking up flow Mm. of a game and just, yeah, it just didn't feel good playing it. It was competitive. All four of us were close in score. Uh, All of us, I think, did relatively well. But yeah, that one main flaw of it being just completely and utterly tactical kind of ruined it the experience for all of us wasn't a bad game but completely forgettable so Mm. the epitome of a game on a pile of games for me that was a lot of those about then uh money uh which is a reiner canizia simple little uh bidding and drafting game i think you would describe that as there are a bunch of different currencies. It's set collection, yeah. right? Is all it is. And yeah, you're trying, yeah, you're putting down a bid of some number of currency cards and whoever has the highest bid then gets to pick one of the other piles, either someone else's bid or the two available piles uh, in the center of the table. Rinse and repeat until the deck runs out of cards. Whoever has the best set collection wins the game. That I mean, in a nutshell, yeah. that's what it is. Yes, and uh, I forgot that one. That was one we played the same um, session that we did uh, Paris Connection and Lord of Rome. Um, yeah, I mean, it was and it was a classic piece of 90s Knizia, right? Very simple rules. Trivially easy to explain the rules, but then you get into the game and oh, it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, yeah, I, I like that kind of. I mean, it's the classic Euro, but with that extra little twist that I think Knizia gave in in those nineties Euros. Yeah, definitely uh, happy to play it. Yeah, money. It, it's too big of a box. It's old school uh, Eagle Griffin, um, where the box is just way bigger than it actually needs to be. Um, much like, say, Paris Connection from Queen <laughs> Games, which, yeah, that's a massive box. Yeah, that but was I digress. Crazy. Yeah, uh, but money, really, really enjoyable filler. Speaking of filler, played another one uh, called Sheep and Sheep. It's a Hisashi Hayashi game. So I saw, okay, cute sheep. And I saw that name. So I was like, oh, what's this? So I, it was me, Jess, Shrey, and I think Dan 
And this was at uh, Lobster Trap, a local invite-only uh, convention here in the area. And I was like, here, Shrey, learn it. Uh, and he, <laughs> he, he was a trooper, and he ran us through the game. Really enjoyed that. That is a fun hmm. little filler where you're playing down cards within your tableau, but you have to continue runs, runs of numbers, meaning if you have like uh, a one, a two, and a three in your tableau, you can build off of those, but then you must extend from that existing number. So if you want to branch off from the two, then you have to play a three, then a four, that type mm-hmm. thing, or you can play down multiple of a number uh, in a grouping. So if there's ones down, you could play more ones or you could play a single card and then it's selecting uh cards from the the general supply that are that are face up for end game scoring stuff and whoever does the tidiest little tableau you know you you lose points based on how many spaces wide uh, you know in row and column hmm. that it is really clever is it end all be all? No, but it was a I, hmm. it was absolutely thinky filler and something that I think would be good to stream if I ever either get a copy of it or can borrow a copy of right. Sheep and Sheep. But yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised hmm. by that. So getting some interesting little lunchtime string games. Yeah, right. So it sounds right. Brussels eighteen ninety seven, which is the card smaller card game version of Brussels eighteen ninety three. I enjoy Brussels eighteen ninety three. Brussels 1897 felt it was very reminiscent. It it amazes me how designers are able to do this, that they can take a game, turn it into a completely different game, but keep the essence of that, where it came from completely intact. And they did that really, really well. However, I wonder who this game is for, honestly, because I enjoy Brussels 1893, and I would rather play that than this smaller card game version of it. But if you're not a fan of the original game, this isn't going to make you a fan of that game or of itself because it's so reminiscent, even though the mechanisms are Mm. different and, and the whole nine yards. But it really does remind me of playing Brussels 1893. So that's pretty impressive to me. But I just I'm not quite sure who it's yeah, when I heard the description, so I heard you chat over with Rado in one of the earlier episodes, it actually intrigued me a bit because I played Brussels 1893 once and I thought it's got a game with some nice features, but it's got a bit too much going on to justify itself. It needed a bit of paring down. And so the thought of the card game, well, maybe that is the paring down that's enough. I don't know because I've not played it, but it'd be interesting to see. That's actually maybe a fair point, I guess, if... If you saw things that you liked, but it, you thought it was too much going on, then yeah, I guess that's who this game might be for. So yeah, we'll definitely I mean, have I, to get I that I find to the that table. a common criticism I have of of, of games, uh, particularly sort of in the last 10 or so years, is this habit to try and create a mechanic salad where people say, oh, I want this mechanic, let's throw this into game. And, and they throw a bit too many things in and it doesn't justify the weight. Um, that it comes up with. And I, and that's, I mean, in contrast to, say, something like Money, which is the Knizia game, where it's really, there's nothing you can imagine taking away from that game. There's nothing to take away. Exactly. Right, right. And, but with these, with a number of these games, and, and you'll see a comment along these lines a bit later on in this uh, show, if, if you've got something and you feel, well, there's just too many things, you could take something away and the resulting game would be healthier. A pruning, mm. if you will. 
Last one that I want to mention that we've uh, played was Zoocracy. This is a political game that kind of has a whimsical theme to it on a serious subject of uh, the zoo animals have got their autonomy and are forming a democracy and forming a parliament and, and all of that. And it sounded fascinating in a democracy-ish way, but also on a not too serious way. We got this played. I think it was four or five player. I can't remember which that was, but ultimately all of us, we enjoyed our experience, but I don't think we enjoyed our experience because of the game. I think we enjoyed it because friends around the table. You're being a lot more positive about the game than I remember as I walked through the door um, to join in. It's, um, it was far too random and far too luck based uh, for a lot of our tastes. Let's put it that mm. way. And some of the rules didn't quite make a whole lot of sense as to why we would do certain things. So overall, we'll probably try it again. I'll touch base with the designer to make sure we didn't get any rules wrong. But I fear that the level of randomness in that game is going to be a bridge too far for the majority of folks to enjoy. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Mm. So, yeah. Anything else that you've played that left a positive experience that you want to uh, uh, A particularly on? positive experience? Oh, um, well, I, I can... I'll throw in, I finally got to play a game of Wildcatters, which um, I got as part of one of the freebie hangout handouts from Heavycon last year. And uh, I've been uncomfortable about opening it up because um, everyone says it's a four-player only game. And, of course, I play a lot of games with just me and Cindy, so I tend to be wary of a game that I can't play two-player. But we got it played in one of the game nights in the last couple of months, and wow, it is... I'm keeping it, even though it, even if I only ever get to play it very rarely as a four-player game, because it is, it is one good game. I really, really enjoy that, and where you and I are going to be recording the uh, the top fifty of all time uh, down the road here sooner rather than later. And uh, spoiler, yep, still in there and, mm. and belongs in there. It it's a game that every time I play it, I want to play it more, and I'm always enjoying my plays of Wildcatters. So, yeah, and another one sense. I'll mention as well is uh, another one I got in the Heavycon thing, which was Ulm, um, ULM, the city, the city in Germany. Um, it and it's not a super special game, you know. It it, it fits in with his kind of yin yang style. Yeah, it's, it's it's got some nice little mechanisms, um, and it's a nice occasional game. Pull it off the shelf, teach it quickly, play it. Um, enjoy a, 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 quite an interesting at, action selection based on this little grid that you sort of push an action tile onto and then you take the three actions that are on the tile and not the one that fell off. And it, it's, again, it's, this is not a deep analysis game, but it's a nice occasional one for pulling out, you know, once every year or so and, and quick teach and an enjoyable little play. See, to me, this sounds like the quintessential midweight Euro, be it Rococo, Castles of Burgundy, something along those lines. When you say the occasional game, that's yeah. what I'm picturing, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and may I wouldn't necessarily put it as high on the list as Castles of Burgundy, um, but um, it, but it's it's definitely high enough up the list that I'm happy to keep a copy. I wouldn't buy it, um, but since I've got it, 
Um, it's nice because again, it's got that just that action selection thing is just fun enough to to make for a, a more enjoyable hour, hour and a half. Cool. Acquisition wise, acquired anything of late? Well, the only thing I've acquired is the uh, Age of Steam reprint that uh, came through the door, um, complete with its misprinted maps and all the rest of it. So disappointed. I got to be honest. I I've heard I I don't have a copy of it. Um, I, obviously, I have my second edition, and I think I still have a third edition somewhere in the library, and a whole bunch of the maps. But I don't have a copy of this. I just have the prototype maps that were sent to us and everything. But, man, I'm disappointed to hear that. Is it the end-all, be-all? Is it, to- is it completely playable? Absolutely. Doesn't mean I'm not disappointed by it, though. It is sad. I mean, the, it's nicely produced. Um, I do like the art style. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy because basically the way I looked at it is I spent 150 bucks and got 19 maps between it and the various add-on maps. I went big on the maps because I want, hey, Age of Steam maps. You can't have too many, I'm told. Uh, that's what I hear, I hope, because I, I I subscribe to that theory at least. I will say that not all of the graphic design choices that were made are my favorite. Um, some of the, the, the way the the cities are the the script the the, the font used mm. and the way that they're kind of curved a little um makes them harder to read for me yep and does that matter absolutely not it's purely flavor and except for maybe set up this x name city gets you know more cubes or something like that but it just there are little things about it that i just wish the attention to detail had been a little bit tighter and, and i'm not talking about the font used or anything i'm talking about the 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 errors whether it's misprints right. or whatever just especially for a game that is this near and dear to my heart especially mm. um yeah it's a bummer man yeah anyway as far as me what have i acquired well i got a copy of promenade from the designer, there were only 200 copies of these bad boys made, so that I was I was grateful for that. But it allowed us to be able to uh, stream that as well. But like I said, or like Martin said, it is getting reprinted to where it'll be available. Should be the first half of next year, so that's good because that's a game that a lot of people I think are going to enjoy, and I'm yeah. glad to see that it, that's getting a bigger print run. And then uh, a, a game that completely. I had overlooked or never heard of when I got to Essen, then was super excited about when after media day at Essen and then never made it over to the booth because it happens on occasion and it showed up unexpected and unannounced in the mail. That's That's, good. Yeah, right. That's called Tricky Ways. It's the game. You're going to have to go back. I don't remember where I mentioned it, but it's marbles and you're laying out almost one of those marble marble madness type you know you drop a marble through this it goes down it follows down uh this path and it's it's all about trying to build certain things with these tracks if you will for Hmm. laying out for a marble to go down this path is it a good game i don't know but it really appealed to me when, <laughs> when i saw it at essen and i'm really glad that this showed up so i'm excited to check that out I don't know how it's going to be yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Sounds fun. And then the other two that have shown up, uh, one is a pre-production copy, uh, which is Big City, the 20th anniversary edition from Mercury Games, Big City. 
Comes in a big box. Think container, mm. 20th anniversary edition. Same designer, completely different game. Not a heavy economic game, but a city builder. It's a simple city builder. And the majority of the space space in this box, in the expansion boxes, are massive, big city buildings. So I remember playing it and enjoying it, but I don't remember a whole lot more than that. We're going to be streaming it uh, here in the next week mm-hmm. or so. So looking forward to doing that, but I don't remember how to play it. So have to play it this weekend. Yep. Then another game that I have heard a lot of people talking about and everybody that's been talking about it has spoken positively, at least from what they've seen of it. And that is legacies. It's a prototype that was sent to us. Uh, It's currently on Kickstarter until sometime the first week in December, we're going to be streaming it next week. So looking forward to that. We're going to be playing the hell out of it over the next uh, four or five days, both in anticipation or getting ready for the live stream, but also just to kind of put the game through its paces. Uh, I, it's kind of a, I mean, you, you choose a character and it's evolving this character and leaving their legacy, depending on what, things happen in this game it's kind of a civ builder sort of a sort it of civ seems build like where the civilizations are families yeah so sounded really intriguing hmm. to me and a lot of folks uh both uh outside the kickstarter in slack and in other places i've seen talking about it have said from what they've seen and what they've read about it they're really intrigued by this so i'm looking forward to getting that one played yeah it'd be interesting to try it out with uh, the turkey coma in me <laughs> nice uh, as far as hunting and anticipating, what's on your list? Well, the only thing really on my list is uh, I st- uh, back to the Madeira Kickstarter. Um, I realized that there was no reason for me, absolutely no reason whatsoever, that I needed to get the fancy blinged out version of the Madeira Kickstarter. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's a bit of a risk because I, um, I'm very limited in my games purchases. And uh, one of the things I, I don't like to get a game unless I've played it, and I preferably played it with Cindy, so I can know that Cindy liked it. Sure. Now, I have played Madeira. I played it at HeavyCon, and uh, we had a good time with it. And I know it's a nice game, but Cindy was busy crucifying everybody at PAX Premier Second Edition at the time, so she didn't get a chance to play. Um, so I'm taking a bit of a risk, but uh, I think it's a good chance. It's a nice game. I, I said I enjoyed it a good bit, and I absolutely don't need the unnecessary blink. That you got. Okay. All right. Moving on. Uh, For me, as far as anticipation, uh, there are 12 cases in route for Messin still, but I have it on good authority, i.e. Clay has told me that they should be arriving here next Wednesday, which means I have 12 cases of unboxing streams to do, which means probably going to break that up into two streams next week, I think, because... 12 cases. No, no, two streams. Yeah, that's going to be two streams. So looking forward to that because I'll be honest, it's been long enough now. I forget what's in the boxes. So it'd be like Christmas. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm it, still going to be impressed to see where the hell you put all these boxes. There's not much room down there. Oof. Well, we're going to find out my Tetris skills. So we'll go. For, <laughs> we'll go with that. As far as looking forward to playing, I have two on my list. Pax Transhumanity. I don't know how this keeps getting slid, but it keeps getting slid. That needs to stop because that is one of my most anticipated games of 2019. That needs to get played stat. And the other is the game, the prototype that just arrived, Legacies. 
enough people have been ta- saying enough positive things and enough excitement around it that I'm excited to play it. Do I have high expectations? No, because I try not to do that. But I hope it's good. So we'll see. So those two are what's on my list. How about you? Well, I'm still happy to binge recently acquired games, Pax Premier, Brass, and City of the Big Shoulders. I'm just wanting to play them again and again and again at this point. So uh, that's top of the list. But there are other things there as well. I'm actually kind of interested, increasingly interested in playing Pax Transhumanity, if only because I'm realizing how much I really enjoy that card market system and how it works and trying it with other games. I'm a kind of put off Pax series games to some extent because of the bad experience with a rule book that I had when my one game of Pax Renaissance, and that kind of made me feel I don't want to fight a rule book when I'm playing a game. Um, but hey, I've got you to fight rule books um, for me, and <laughs> Trey ha- as well. Ha- right. Ha- ha- happy to take it for the team there. But uh, there's a big queue for Pax Transhumanity at HCHQ, so I don't suppose I'm going to get on that stream. So, oh, I but, don't know that that's the case. We'll, well see how we'll, that goes. I'm hoping to. But on what well, I'm, well, I'm hoping to get on the stream, we've got a few streams coming up that have got uh, my eye on them. One is Alabari, because I've never played Snowdonia, and I've heard it's a good game, and Alabari is supposedly Snowdonia 2.0. Yep. So. I'd like to try that. That's a good way to put it. Key market, because Richard Breeze, always worth a try. Agreed, and and I think it's really good. Do I think this is going to rewrite history as the greatest game ever? No, but I'm excited that it got reprinted. I think it's a good game. I mean, the last thing on the list is a thing we've been talking about doing since um, since uh, HeavyCon, in fact, I think, when we talked about the trying it out, which is a Knizia triple header day, um, where we take what's often referred to as the Knizia auction trio, Modern Art, Medici, and Ra, three outstanding games, and we're going to play them in one day, compare and contrast. Yeah, I think that should be a, a lot of fun, and I think folks will enjoy that, so that's cool. So now for the uh, main attraction game, which is City of the Big Shoulders, also known as Chicago 1875, depending on where you're buying the game, because it is about Chicago. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and a nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, City of the Big Shoulders. They tell me you are wicked and I believe them for I have seen your pained women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked, and I answer, Yes, it is true I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. And they tell me you are brutal, and my reply is, On the faces of women and children I have seen the marks of wanton hunger. And having answered, so I turn once more to those who sneer at this my city. And I give them back the sneer and say to them, Come, show me another city with lifted heads, singing so proud to be alive, and coarse and strong and cunning. Flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job, here is a tall, bold slugger set vivid against the little soft cities. Fierce as a dog, with tongue lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness, bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, Building, breaking, rebuilding, 
Under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth. Under the terrible burden of destiny, laughing as a young man laughs. Laughing even as an ignorant fighter laughs, who has never lost the battle. Bragging and laughing that under his wrist is the pulse, and under his ribs the heart of the people. Laughing. Laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud to be the hog butcher, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and freight handler to the nation. That is a poem by Carl Sandberg, um, written in 1914, that many ways inspires this game. It's a poem that uh, apparently the designer Raymond Chandler is a big fan of, um, an ode to the city of Chicago at its height, and uh, the many ways a trigger for much of what goes on in this game. Seems appropriate for sure. So City of the Big Shoulders, published in 2019, designed by the aforementioned Raymond Chandler III. Artwork by Emily R. Deering and Andreas Resch. Published by Parallel Games, as well as Quinta Games Overseas. Plays two to four players. It says the playtime's in about two to three hours. As far as availability and cost, hey, this is heavy cardboard. (laughs) It's sold out. However... There are copies available from Board Game Bliss up in Canada, I saw, uh, for about 79 bucks US. Otherwise, uh, your only availability right now is secondhand market. Other than that, that I've seen, however, a second printing is in the works currently. So it's coming. So even if you want it right now and you can't get it, it is coming. As far as plays and player counts that we've experienced, to the best of my recollection, I think I have about a half dozen plays or so, all of them at three and four. And I've got eight plays logged at all player counts, two, three, and four. So we got you all covered there. So Martin, tell folks what's going on in City of the Big Shoulders. Okay, in this game, the players are investors setting up little investment partnerships to support companies that are going to be selling things and making being these hog butchers to the world. Um, you start with a pile of money and you then start companies um, in a manner that will be similar to you from 18xx style. Um, each company you can invest in both companies that you control and companies other people control. Um, then these companies will go out can consume resources and producing goods into four different markets. Um, food, dry goods, um, um, meat packing, and shoes. Very specific shoes, the last one, but there we are. Um, there are two companies, at least, in each of these four markets. Um, one of them has four, but the other three all have two. So there's potential competition between the companies in each market. Um, but you are looking to produce goods into these markets, sell into the markets, and then at the end you announce a dividend that you pay to your investors, which will both be cash to those investors and also rise the value of your shares. The game is described as a cross between 18xx and Arkwright. And I often hear people criticise that because they say, well, it's really very different to 18xx and Arkwright. And I always feel that when people make that statement, they're missing the point of when you say a game is a cross between 18xx and Arkwright. After all, I'm a cross between my father and my mother, but I'm very different to my father and very different to my mother. You can look at me and perhaps see some 
the other traits, um, uh, but I am my own person. And similarly, City of the Big Shoulders is its own game. Yes, it's got the eyes of 18xx and the nose of Arkwright. You can kind of see where those things come from, but it's very much its own game. I was originally going to make that an, uh, an analogy nowhere near that well done. <laughs> and when we were actually downstairs uh, getting cups of tea made, getting ready to record this, you made that analogy and I was like, thanks for ruining my summary, Martin. <laughs> That's really well put because the this game does pull, it seems, from both of those. They have remnants or you can see the ancestry of both of those games but it very much is its own animal so from with that said we're going to tackle this as city of the big shoulders not city of the, of the big shoulders in comparison to an 18xx or in comparison to arkwright it how does it stand on its own well that's what we're here to discuss so speaking of discussing Let's go over the five factors that we think contribute to giving a game its weight, starting off with the rules complexity or the rules overhead here. And I find that rules complexity is not too bad um, compared to uh, some of the other heavier games that we've talked about here. Um, one thing that really helps is it's got a very definite procedural flow through the game is what you do. It's very much fits the theme. Yeah, not only that, but it breaks things up as to, okay, in this phase, we do this thing. So it breaks it up into little chunks, not little bite-sized chunks, but you're not having to digest the entire game in every phase Right in the learning process, at least. Obviously, to do well, you need to do that as you are wont to do. But that said, the game is essentially broken up into four phases. You have the stock phase, which is investing or the buying and selling of shares uh, of companies or the stock round in an 18xx, yep. if you will. This is where you will uh, buy shares of perhaps your own company to help get capital into the company, of other people's companies, because, hey, I'm thinking Edward's going to do a good job of running this company, so on a piece of that action. You might start new companies, in which case you have to buy a starting set of shares, the president's share. This will be very familiar to 18xx folks. An important part of this is this means there's a lot of money flowing around because every company has its own treasury. But what really matters for winning the game is the money in your own personal treasury as the investor. So you've got to really keep those pots of money separate and there'll be a lot of money moving around between them. Then the next phase, which is... Arguably one of the most unique aspects of this game, which is the building phase or playing action tiles or actually building the worker placement action spots for the various players. Yeah, I, I always stress that these are partner placements, not worker placement games, because, you know, they're partners with top hats. The workers <laughs> are very different. Says, uh, says the, uh, the British fellow sitting across from me. OK, I, okay. I will defer to you, sir, in this. And I quite like the way they do this. Each, each round, effectively, you have three tiles and you choose one that you're going to build. And what that means is you've got this nicely dynamic worker placement space that's being built up. Um, and that will turn out differently in each game. Right. And it not to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but the fact that you place one, you keep one for a future round, and then you discard one out of the game 
can have a significant impact on mm. what actions are going to be available for not just you, but the other players at the table. So it makes it very dynamic, I feel yeah. like. The third phase is the action phase or the worker placement aspect of the game or the partner phase, if you will. Yeah, the partner placement. And these are the tiles you just built. And the, what these tiles do is, is a number of different things. Uh, a number of them are various things you're going to need to make your factory work at all, like hiring real workers, um, automating workers. Um, you'll also hire managers or sales peeps that will go out and in, in allow you to enhance what you do. You may be able to buy resources through this uh, mechanism. There's a whole bunch of different actions that you're going to have to carry out. However, you've only got two partners at the beginning, and you've got to decide, what on earth am I going to do with the two of those? And just like in other partner placement games, there are more things that you want to do than you're able to do, so it's all about prioritizing, but also... It is action selection, so when you go to a lo most of the locations, it blocks off those locations from other players. So the turn order comes into play, as well as prioritizing, okay, what must I do and what do I want to do type things. And finally, the fourth and final phase, outside of a cleanup phase at the end, is the operations phase or company operations. So in an 18xx, you have stock rounds, you have ops rounds. Well... This would be the operations rounds. The companies actually operate. Right. So the the order of play is an interesting that their thing that varies in all of these different phases. Each phase has a different um, um, order of play mechanism. Here, there's a thing called appeal, which is this track that goes up the board that kind of summarizes a sort of general marketing appeal of the company. Its crucial effect is it's the turn order for the operations. So if I have two companies and Edward has two companies, I might operate one of mine, then he might operate both of his, and then I might get to operate my, my last company last. And that operating order affects a couple of things. One is it gives you first dibs at selling goods into your market. So if we're both selling shoes, the higher appeal company will get to sell first and generally do much better as a result of Which that. makes sense if they're the most appealing, yep. right? But there's also potentially competition for resources. You can buy resources from the buildings during the partner placement um, phase of the game. And there's also this thing called the supply chain that we'll talk about later on. Um, but this is another way to get resources. But the per first person to get to the supply chain has a definite advantage. And so that's another case where appeal comes into play. So you operate your company, you consume your resources, you run your factories, you produce goods, you sell goods. And then depending on how many goods you've sold, you declare your dividend, return the money to the investors, watch your stock price go up and feel happy. Or withhold and say, you know, glory to Rome to the investors and keep the capital within the company so that the company has more liquidity for possible things that it may want to do in lieu of paying investors. So that's kind of the overview of the game, but also the reason we wanted to put that here is because of each individual phase being so drastically different and so self-contained, yes, there are implications of what you do in one phase is absolutely going to affect something in every other phase. But as far as rules overhead, how you play the game and the following the rules and digesting the rules within each phase, actually, pretty easy. 
relatively speaking, given the weight of the game, I would say. Yes, and I think that's what makes the rules overhead really seem much less. The, the combination of this very procedural order, together with the fact that it really is does fit the theme really well. The mechanics you're doing definitely feel that they're part of the game and they fit beautifully in the setting. Agreed. Which brings us to the next part, which in most of these games, the planning aspect of this or the, the decision tree, the decision matrix. So what all do you have to think about while actually trying to do well in the game. And this follows the phases. So you're planning in the stock phases, okay, which stocks do I buy? Um, you've got to look around the table saying, hmm, who do I think is going to be doing well? Um, you say to yourself, okay, do I want to start a new company? Is that going to be better than investing in an existing company that's higher, already higher up on the stock track? Where do I place my money? Is there a risk that I could actually place company uh, money in a company that's actually going to go downwards? That doesn't happen so much in this game, but it can happen. And don't forget about the option to sell shares as well, which you could do for a number of reasons, a couple of which are either predatory, meaning to tank the, stock, the share value of someone else's stock, or collectively as a group, you may be wanting to negatively impact someone's share value. Uh, if they're running away with things, it's a it's a good way to kind of retard their their lead. But also, there may be a question of liquidity, especially when it comes to wanting to start a new company. Well, if you don't have enough cash, well, shares can be turned into liquid cash by way of selling them. So then it becomes a question of what shares do I sell because not only am I deflating or yeah, deflating the cost of those shares, but I'm also making these shares available for other people to buy, which I may not want to give you that opportunity because they might be really good shares, but they might be priced at a point to where, oh, wait, I really need all that money that they can give me. So there's a lot of decisions mm. go into not just buying, but also potentially selling shares. And this is definitely the eyes of 18xx appearing in the game. This is uh, strikes me as very much a similar kind of decision process that we get with that. But then the next bit is definitely not anything that comes from 18xx because there's no rails to build, no routes to set up. Instead, it's about how do I run this company and what choices do I want to make in terms of these partner placement actions? So you've got the decision of which tile do I pick to put down to make available, um, a tile perhaps that I might want to use or a tile that I think Edward might want to use and therefore I'm going to get the money from him coming and visiting my tile. Um, and then... You've got your partner actions. Which tiles do I go to? Do I want to hire a manager to get the little bonuses I get when I run my factories and I've got a manager in place? Or do I want to make sure I get my resources now? Or do I take a gamble on the supply chain later on? Uh, or maybe I want to do some automation so I get more goods. All, and then if I'm running more than one company, do I want to do things for this company or for that company? Because I've only got one set of partners. I've got to feed both of them. Exactly. I was just going to say those partners don't have any direct tie to any specific company. So if you're running multiple companies and you only have two partners or possibly as the game progresses, two, three, possibly more, you then have to figure out, okay, this partner is going to go there and it's going to directly benefit this company because that's what I'm trying to do. But then you're neglecting the other company because now you're focusing on the lots of decisions to be made on that. Mm. So, yeah, so there's quite a rich um, set of decisions, I think, in this game. Definitely. So moving on from there is into the 
luck or random factors, which this game has more than you would normally see in a game of this weight, I think. Yeah, there are four um, areas, um, which are going to be harder to describe um, for those people who haven't played. But I've mentioned this thing called the supply chain um, already. Um, This is basically a way that you can obtain resources during the operating, the final phase of the game. And not the only way you can get resources, but a good way of getting resources if you can happen to get the resources that you want. And here there is a good bit of randomness comes in because the resources that are available are drawn drawn out of a bag. There's four kinds of resources, wood, coal, steel, and spam. Well, it's meat products, but I always call it spam because it's a pink cube. (laughs) And whatever is available is going to be drawn out of the bag. And if you're first on the appeal track, you already can see what's there. But... When people start buying from it and more stuff comes out of the bag, it's going to come out random. And that's quite a big source of randomness, I would say. And that right there, in my opinion, is the most divisive aspect of this game as far as the randomness of that supply chain or the market being able to acquire those resources. Because if you don't have the resources, you know what your factory is not going to do? produce goods. If you're not producing goods, it means you're not selling goods, which means you're not making money, which means you're not paying dividends, which means your stock price isn't going up. And that's bad. So we can have very far reaching impacts on the game. And yeah, we'll talk more about it as we go along. But I think that is a significant uh, piece of randomness that I think does impact gameplay to a point where people need to make note of it. Yeah. Then there's a number of more, what I'll call smaller level randomness. Probably the next highest level randomness for me is the building tiles. I said you get you get three to choose from, one that you're going to build. Well, that three is delivered to you randomly. Um, and there are times when I felt, ah, Edward's getting all the good building tiles. Why didn't I get any of those? I'm not sure how big of an impact it is in practice, but I suspect that if one person is particularly lucky, it can it can make a difference. Exactly what I was going to say. I In the course of a game, there aren't enough draws there for that to even out. So I think it can impact the game. One simple fix, if you want to call it a fix, is draft. Right. Yep. That that that's always going to be the uh the fallback. They're broken up into I believe it's three different eras. So like a a a first phase, a second phase, a third phase type or era of tiles so that they become increasingly more powerful. But that said, if you were to draft them, that should alleviate some of that randomness aspect to it. Yep. And then there is a, a set of capital improvements that come up randomly. I don't think those have a big impact. Uh, I don't think so. Basically, what they do is each of the companies in this game are very asymmetric. They they all have different intakes of resources and produce different amounts of uh, end, end products that you're going to be uh, selling, but also just the way they operate are going to be different. How many workers, et cetera, et cetera. One of the other things that makes them even more asymmetric and gives them their own kind of flavor are these capital assets or capital improvements. And what these do is some companies have slots in which you can, after you purchase them, kind of slot them in and they will trigger certain things for that company if it can hold that. Each of them also gives you a one-time bonus when you actually purchase the tile. So you not only have a decision to make of what tile to purchase, 
uh, for the immediate bonus, but also possibly of the installation bonus that it's going to give the company. And then it goes back to the question of if I have multiple companies, which company is going to get that that tile to be able to plug in? Sometimes you're just buying it for the one-time bonus and discarding it out of play. But that there's that decision tree, a level of decisions that's going into this, but also the randomness because it has a bit of a conveyor thing to where they become cheaper the older they are, et cetera, et cetera. So if the right tile comes up for the right person at the right time, can it make a difference? Yes. Is it a deal breaker one way or the other? I don't think so. So in that regards, I agree with you. Yeah, I don't think it's going to make a a huge difference on the game. And then kind of surprisingly, the uh, small randomness is the way that demand comes out. Um, It's quite cleverly done mechanically, I think, with these tiles with um, varying amount of slots on them. Um, There might be one slot or six slots. And then there are three tiles for each kind of good. Um, and the way it, the tiles are phased is that the small value cards are, the, are right at the beginning of the game, and then you've got the larger values later on, and they kind of run out before the end as you get a kind of the depression comes in. Well, yeah, you're running into the Great Depression, which is when this game takes place, or the, towards the end of the game, right? Yeah, and so the idea, so you've got a bit of setup randomness from the original demand tiles that are put out, and then ongoing randomness because you don't know which cards are going where, but there isn't a huge spread of values between those later tiles that come out, so I don't think it actually affects demand hugely. Yeah, I don't see this as being a significant impact, but I do think there is an impact in a sense that it may sway you from starting this company versus that company. Uh, Not just are we talking competition amongst the players for the same both resources as well as the products they're producing, but also how many of those products are available to be sold in the market. So it be. it can be a deciding, it can help push you in a certain direction, but I don't think it's going to be the end-all be-all, not yeah. by any stretch. And I think really most of that is the impact is at the start of the game. It's your initial company choice when you're saying, oh, dry goods has has the X in the first column. It means that the demand is much lower. So I don't want to be touching dry goods. I want to be picking something else as a starting company. Once you've gone a couple of rounds uh, then I don't think there's that much difference. So it's not likely to influence your choice of which companies to go into. I think that's fair. And overall, I do think because of the randomness of that supply chain, I do think that the luck factor or randomness here does play a a noticeable part in the weight of the game overall. Yeah. And this is, I mean, one of the things that we kind of haven't indicated too much yet, but it's going to come out more and more as discuss this game further is there's actually a, not, a lot we're not quite sure about with this game. Um, I mean, we've played it a few times each, and obviously you get a bit of a group style um, that occurs here at, uh, at HCHQ. Um, but we also hear of other people playing the game. And it's sometimes you listen to, you read an account on a Slack channel of another group playing the game, and you think, are they playing the same game? Right, it's a completely different game than what I have experienced, which... I think is both a credit to the game, but also leads you to believe, is there a level of group think that, that, you know, a group falls prey to with this game as they do with others as well. But I think that can definitely come into play here with, uh, with city of the big shoulders. And this particularly ties into this randomness factor, because one thing I'm getting from, from some 
descriptions of play is the, the randomness from the supply chain specifically is just so great it's having a huge effect on the game. But then other people are saying, well, that's because you're relying too much on the supply chain to gain resources. You should be using the buildings instead more and mitigating that supply chain. You can also do other things to mitigate the randomness of the supply chain. So the question there is, well, yeah, there's a huge random element there, but maybe there's enough mitigation techniques that you have to learn to use to be able to control that. And the question that I feel is is a kind of an open question at the moment is, well, how realistic is that mitigation? Um, and I, my, at the moment, I'm feeling you have got the mitigation tools there, but I don't think I've played it enough to be really confident in that judgment. I think that summed it up pretty well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as game length goes, uh, the game plays anywhere from two and a half to roughly four hours. Yeah, I, I play, the last time I played it, it was four hours, including teach as a three player game with a couple of experienced gamers who'd never played the game before, um, which I felt was actually quite a nice length, really, because the teach is, I mean, it's not a long teach, but there's a fair bit there. Yeah, it's involved. And again, going back to the whole rules overhead, it's procedural, which helps. You can break it up into chunks, but it's still, there's a fair bit there. This is definitely on the heavier end of the scale. Uh, And another thing that to keep in mind with this game is this is one of those that like the first round or two might go relatively quickly, but as the game progresses, I'm not going to say the game bogs down, but the turns take longer as the game goes along because there are far more decisions to be made uh, as the game progresses, it feels like. Yeah, and there's also a lot more companies to run. You've got more partner actions because towards the end of the game, you've got five partners out instead of the two that you had at the start. That slows things down. Another thing that's interesting as well is, and again, I've only played this game with two people twice and both times with Cindy, it's not been any quicker with two players than it has with, with three or four, which was interesting. Really? But, I mean, it's on a very, very small sample size, right? So that could be just weird um, in the way that we've played it. But, yes, I was quite intrigued by the fact that it still uh, ended up being a longer game there. Hmm. So that's something to keep in mind as far as game length. And, finally, the getting it factor, or how long does it take to to have the everything, the rules sink in and then be able to actually play the game without the rules getting in the way i for me it clicked very quickly i mean i remember we played it about a year ago um in the stream with the prototype and in the first round or two i'd got the hang of the game and um cindy similarly quick picked it up fairly quickly um i think yeah, it actually in many ways compared to many other games of this kind of weight you get it really quite quickly because of this very procedural stepping style and the theme just really makes everything come together, I think. Strategy-wise, though, definitely is going to take a number of plays, uh, especially when, you, when you're talking some of the more advanced uh, machinations, uh, like when we talk about uh, trashing stocks and uh, tanking people's values, uh, share value, and so on and so forth, which, to be honest, we haven't seen a lot of. But that's not to say that those aren't viable ways to play the game. But that goes that kind of follows that point of, oh, hey, look at this. There's still a lot more to learn. And here we are, you know, six, eight plays respectively into this game. Yeah, I'll let you know about how long it takes to figure out the strategy once we've actually figured it out. Well, there's that. So where do you where would you say this game fits uh, weight wise? I would call it heavy. 
because yeah, I, of the amount of planning involved. I 100% agree. Even though the level of randomness in this, because of, as we kind of alluded to, or Martin actually just said, that I think there's enough ways to mitigate uh, a fair bit of the randomness here that I don't think it negatively impacts the weight of the game to drop it down from a, a heavier game. If so, yeah, I, I agree. Heavy game here. Moving on to the production quality of the game, starting out with the components. I got to say, overall, I'm really happy with the way mm. this game turned out. It Everything about this looks quality, feels quality, really happy with it. Yeah, I mean, it's good, solid pieces. All the chips are nice, thick cardboard. There's nice little player pieces. I, 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 in case it hasn't been obvious, I like the fact that your workers are partners with top hats. <laughs> um, a really nice little uh, train that's used as a priority deal token for whoever starts the stock round. Um, and I like the train is then a, a nice nod back to 18xx, of course. And even the box, it's a thick, sturdy box. It's got the City of the Big Show or Chicago uh, poem. Uh, written on the in inside the cover of the box, it has a, a sleeve that comes with it. I don't know if that's the special Kickstarter. The Kickstarter only is it? Okay, and actually, right. I bad, toss my, my sleeve because it just gets in the way of getting I, the box open. It, well, not only that, but it gets dinged up. But it's pretty, so yep. there's that. But production quality overall, really, really happy with it. Um, it does have kind of a papery cardboard money something. Yeah, if there's only if there's one thing you could criticize, it's the fact that they provide paper money. But I mean, they say very clearly on look anybody who's going to play a game like this because of the amount of money you've got to handle and there's so many different piles of money one for every player plus one for every company you're going to be using poker chips and and there's no way they can put poker chips in the game because only lunatics like Roxley would do that so as a result you're going to re- you're going to want pay- the the poker chips to play this game possibly maybe some folks are going to be out there using a uh, a spreadsheet out there to assist them kind of like what they do in an 18xx i i would actually like to try that I haven't tried it yet, but I've a very simple spreadsheet. There is one you can download from BGG, but honestly, you can be a complete idiot in spreadsheets and write the spreadsheet for this one. It's easy to do. I would definitely like to try it and see it out because I think it could uh, help speed things up a little bit. All right, fair enough. And then one thing I've also um, would mention when we're talking about BGG stuff, there is a BGG aid um, available, that's Board Game Geek, obviously, for those who don't know, that lists all the companies and their capabilities on one sheet of paper. Oh, that's nice. So instead of, oh, let me go, hey, let me see the the stack of companies over there. Oh, no, let me have that piece of paper and take a look at it. And And particularly useful at the beginning when we're all looking at the companies, figuring out which one to start, because everybody's got to start a company in the first round. So having it all on one sheet of paper, I think, is quite handy. And I've printed those out and uh, expect to use them. The box size it's a pretty good size box. We're not, I mean, it's not massive, but it's a pretty good size box. It's 12.2 inches by just under nine inches by three and a half inches or 31 by 22 and a half by nine centimeters. So it's, it has a presence about it for sure on your shelf. Graphic design. What do you think? I think it works well. I mean, I've, I've found it easy to follow what's going on on the board on the whole. Um, so it's been worked good for me. But we have got a couple of little nits that we want to bring out. So the first one, and this is a weird one, is the tracks improve as you go down instead of going up. And I realize I've gone flapped around when it comes to this. It was first pointed out by Paul, well, I first saw it pointed out by Paul Grogan on his review of the game. And 
And my reaction was to kind of agree with him. Oh, yes, this is idiotic. The tracks are going down when you're improving going up. And then I thought about it a bit more and thought, well, yeah, he's right. It does seem idiotic, but I've played this game half a dozen times and it has never bothered me at all. It never even occurred to me until you mentioned this when we were doing our prep. I'm like, what? No, I, what? Ultimately, I think that's a solution looking for a problem yeah although i have to say though you got to remember i'm playing every time i'm playing this game i'm looking at it upside down that is true because when we stream because of the cameras right it, it faces me since i'm teaching the games and such but so that's a fair point and so when i'm playing with cindy i like to give her the advantage of seeing things right way up because you know i've played the game more often but i'm gonna go on this little side tangent here tangent warning why is it that board games these days always have a right way up? Because whenever you play a board game, you're going to be playing it with some people on the other side. So why not go for some kind of more, you know, part of its hot right way up one direction, part of its right way up other direction? Wouldn't that make more sense? Okay, if we're going to go down this <laughs> tangent, sure. Uh, give us Give us a little leeway here. To me, that clutters things. I want things consistent so that if I'm looking at it, I either want it consistently upside down or consistently right side up, depending on which side it's facing, because otherwise I think it gets confusing. And I think that becomes a little difficult to parse because then it you have to take more time. I feel like, wait, is it facing this way? Is it facing that way? Even if it's only, you know, that little split second that it takes, but then it it's just it's brain power that I don't want to have to waste. If things are consistently upside down, okay, I know what to expect. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, Nova. I'm not a graphic designer, so there's that. <laughs> Ian, Emily, I'm curious. Yeah. So there you go. All right. There are a few other things uh, issue-wise. There is an extraneous symbol on the uh on the player aid stock chart area on the board that is confusing the hell out of folks that I know they are going to update uh when they do a second printing of the board. I believe they're actually going to change the direction of the of the instead of them going down right. to go up things. Uh in addition to that, uh the biggest issue graphic design that I have and really I would argue really the only issue I have graphic design wise is the color choices between managers and uh, marketing salespeople? Salespeople, they're a little. It's like tan and tanner <laughs> colors. I think those could have either been different shapes, different, just something to clearly define those. Because even while I'm playing, even with a handful of games under my belt. I still get them confused. Yeah, I find the actual physical components themselves, uh, uh, the two kinds of meeples, the light brown and the dark brown, are easy to tell apart. And if you remember to call them tanagers rather than managers, that remembers that the tan one is the managers and the dark I brown shouldn't have to is my point. Bit. Oh, that's absolutely true. I'm just helping people who are going to get the game yeah, here. Yes. But where it really gets awkward is that there are several spots on the game board or on the building tiles where you look at it and you go, is that supposed to be light brown or dark brown? And I'm not entirely sure because you can only really tell when you've got two different ones next to each other. And then that's where it gets confusing. Agreed. And there's no words 
no. on the on the board anywhere to differentiate so that if it were written somewhere, maybe I my job isn't to help correct this. Yep. It's just that's my biggest issue. Or a hat with the- or a bow tie or something that kind of gets the two more separately than the just the shade of brown. Agreed. But otherwise, graphic design. I think it's I think it's perfectly fine. It's yep. consistent, and once you understand the iconography, you're fine. Moving on to the artwork, what you got? Um, I like it. I mean, I if I would have put it on a scale to, to compared to the sort of top my favorite O'Toole or Roxley games, I would say it's not quite there. But on the whole, it's lovely. I mean, it, you've got um, nice period um, illustrations all over. It's got a definite cohesive theme to it. I'm, I'm I'm really liking it, I must admit. Yeah. I'm a bit of a mapophile. Is that what a cart- cartographer file? Something file. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, maps. I like maps, right? And the fact that uh, Emily chose to take a period Chicago map from this time period and kind of not really overlay it because it's in the background, but you get the idea. It's faded into the background to where you don't even notice it unless you're actually looking at all of this. It's beautiful. I, I think there are certain little details that are available to your eye that make it interesting to me as Martin pulls out the map <laughs> or pulls out the board, as it were. Yep. Um, well, one thing I was going to bring out is uh, something that is a bit confusing. You look at the uh, stock market chart and you notice... The uh, the zero in two fifty is bold, as or, is the four right. in forty. And you're thinking, what's the meaning of this? It's important, right? Oh, hey, so last year or earlier this year, when I was actually uh, at Origins, I sat down and interviewed both Raymond and Emily, and I asked her, "What's up with the bold random? What feels like random boldedness?" bolding what you get the idea certain numbers are bold on the on the chart and uh nope nope no there's no no specific reason for it other than the period that this takes place everything was on a typewriter and some of these typewriters were they're just inconsistencies with the way they would strike things and so she wanted to represent that and so that's why certain things are bolded and others aren't I appreciate that, knowing that. I love that. But the gamer in me is always looking for, oh, what does this mean? What does this represent? Why is this special? So there becomes a a point where the little details like that impede your ability to play the game. This isn't one of those. And knowing that little Easter egg, I really dig that. Yeah. So overall... I really like the artwork. I like the color choices outside mm. of Tanager versus Brown, if you will, uh, for the managers and the salespeople. But outside of that, it's muted. It has kind of a, not to keep going back to this, but an Arkwright color palette hmm. to this game that I also think Arkwright looks pretty, but I, I also know that people see it as a spreadsheet and very boring looking. I like it. I think it looks really good, and I think the little details throughout the board and the in the background and everything really well done. Yeah, it's it, it's a very it's definitely on my upper end of uh, niceness in terms of artwork. Yep. As far as the rule book, clarity and quality, it's a quality rule book. Clarity, 
definitely could have been improved. There, there are definitely uh, aspects of this rule book that leave something to be desired to their credit. And this isn't giving them a pass because again, I have always said that you should blind test your rule book and then address it accordingly, but also hand it off to a professional rules editor. On the positive note, they're going to be doing exactly that. Uh, the rules are going to be edited and reformatted and cleaned up, if you will, to make it a better, easier to parse rule book for the second printing of the game. But as it is, yeah, could have been not not my favorite rule book. Is it terrible? No. Was I able to learn from the rule book? Yes. Was it nice to be able to have access to the designer when I had questions? Yes. And did I have questions? Yes. So therefore, could it have been improved? Yes. Should it have been? Yes. But at least they're doing that for the new printing and they'll make it available online. So there you go. Yeah. And I can't really comment because I was taught the game by a master teacher. Is that obsequious enough? And uh, and I've, I've only used the rule book to look things up very occasionally. I've had no particular problems with it so far. One thing I will point out, though, there's a very good player aid um, that works really well. Um, unfortunately, the fact that it's such a good player aid makes the fact that it's got one step missing in the cleanup phase really egregious because you're not going to look at the rule book because the player guide, guide is so good you don't going to think to look at the rule book and you'll miss it. So do watch that. Um, the missing step, uh, if you're uh, keeping a note of it, is the fact that you're supposed to clear the top slot in the supply chain and in the cleanup phase. Um, make sure you include that because that's going to make a big difference to the gameplay all right that brings us to the meat of the review and well i mean what makes the game enjoyable and why well for me it really comes down to i when i first played the game i'd never played an 18xx game i'd watched a stream that was as closest i'd come to it so this is the first time i was able to get a game where you have this interplay between owning stock and trading stock and actually running a game and for me, that's a new experience and a really enjoyable one. I mean, I really like that back and forth. And so you could, I mean, when, again, however you argue of the comparison to 18xx, I like the fact that I've got this game that allows me to do these things, doesn't necessarily carry the baggage that kind of comes with 18xx. You know, 18xx has a certain intimidation factor, um, there is the complication that the root building stuff is really quite involved. Um, you feel this is going to be a very, very long game. I mean, I know there's people who say, oh, yes, you can play 1846 in a couple of hours. And, you know, that was not my experience. Um, and it's not been the experience of other people I know. Um, but this is definitely a game that you can reasonably play for your first time, including teaching four hours, and usually you'll be down to three. It's a much more accessible ability to get that trade between a decent stock playing game and um, some kind of company action. And I, I do want to stress decent stock playing game here as well, because I've played some of the heavier games recently that have a stock component to them. I'm thinking on stream, I've played Panamax, I've played 18 Lilliput, but the stocks didn't really seem to come out in those games. I never really felt the stock trading was important. Here it is. Yeah, I would I would hesitate to say heavy and put 18 Lilliput in there. <laughs> Panamax is, but the stock market agreed that feels a bit bolted on in that, whereas this, it feels more integral, if not 
as important as it would in a standard 18xx. But again, I want to go back to something that Martin said very clearly at the beginning, because it has the lineage of doesn't mean it is those. And this isn't mm. either Arkwright or an 18xx. So that that's fair. Ultimately, I think it's a deep and intense economic game, which is the types of games that I really enjoy playing. It has aspects that I really enjoy. It has, you know, shared incentives. It has cross investing between companies. It has a worker placement, which those things don't necessarily always go together. I, I was blown away when I saw the, the different mechanisms that had been blended together in this game. I think it does all of these things in a new and fresh and interesting way. So that's a huge plus in my book. Yeah, I think one of the things also that makes the game easy to learn, at least for us, is that none of the mechanisms and mechanics in this game are unusual. They're all very familiar. We've all done worker placement. You know, you've done seen, at least seen some stock trading stuff, but they're put together in a really nice way that fits well. It's a very elegant game in the sense of the pieces fitting together really well, I think. The asymmetry of the companies, each company feels like a unique thing. And it, it in a lot of, if we're going to make the comparison to like an 18XX, often the companies, oh, they they have two tokens instead of three. Oh, they start there instead of here. That type of difference. There may be the occasional other small difference, whereas all of the companies feel completely different in this. Plus, you're competing in different markets. So the apples to apples comparison, it now becomes apples and giraffes. I understand. But the asymmetry between the companies helps keep things feel fresh and gives you different directions to try. It allows you to take possibly the same company and try different things or take a different company and you're going to go in a completely different direction than you've gone in with other companies, potentially. I like that. And it's a nice way of getting that asymmetric starting position, right? I mean, you can think of comparing to games like Terra Mystica or Scythe, where you've got a particular faction board that makes you do something different. But the thing is, that's given to you at the start of the game, and you're kind of stuck with it. Here, A, you choose your company in the context of what other people are doing to make your starting company, and then you get to open up other companies later on if that starting company isn't quite there. So you've got that asymmetric power, but you've got much more agency over choosing how to go with that with that asymmetry. To go back to the comparison to an 18xx, the game does ask you to figure out one of the key things one of the key principles to an 18xx game, which is how do I loot the money from my company's treasury and how do I best get that money from the company to my own pocket? Whether that's dividends or in an 18xx, there is ways to manipulate their suitcase companies. There isn't anything like that here. And that's, again, one of the main differences between an 18xx and City of the Big Shoulders. But it's not trying to be that. But it still does ask that question. It just doesn't offer you all the tools. And the tools that it does offer are different in a lot of ways Mm. than those. But it does. That question is still the core question being asked in this game. 
Yeah, I've heard people complain about the game saying, oh, you're piling up all this money in your companies and it's useless, so that's frustrating. But of course, the whole point in the game is getting the money out of those companies. And if you're doing well, you're actually not piling up the money in the companies. You've figured out a way to actually channel it out. And that's part of the challenge of the game. If I've got a lot of money in sitting in a company at the end of the game, I know I haven't played well enough. I'm quite keen on worker placement games or action selection games in general. But more often than not, the overwhelming majority of these games, the action selection spaces are provided for you by the game. The fact that you get to kind of build your own board every time you play this game via the whole, you know, choose your own partner action spaces. Fascinating to me. Really is. There there are other games that do this, but often they are at worker placement spots for you and you only. Whereas here, you're not only choosing what's going to be beneficial for you or not, or what's going to be beneficial for your for your opponents because you're going to end up capitalizing and getting rewarded for them using those spots. So it's all about making decisions on do you incentivize other people or de-incentivize other people to choose these spots. Plus, you have control over, depending on the number of players in a four-player game, 25% of those action placement spots or worker placement spots, if you will, you get to remove a number of these. And the order in which they come out, you get to dictate. Not a lot of games offer that. I love that about this game. It is, and and I love it particularly because it harks back to the original, as it were. Well, arguably not the original, but certainly the one that popularized the worker placement system, which Kalis. is And, you know, what Kalis has is that exact thing. You put out the spots, it dynamically different with each game. You come to visit my spot, I get something. So maybe I want to put out something that's going to attract you because in order to do that. But if I'm putting something out to attract you, that's, of course, going to help you. So, you know, that trade-off is there. And And not just that, but you're incentivizing people to block you out of being able to go to that spot because it's a worker placement spot, so not multiple players can go there. There are exceptions to all of that, but yeah. I Yeah, I mean, that's one of the main appeals of a worker placement game. Mm. But here you get to build your own spots. I love that. Yeah. That is arguably my favorite part of Kalis as well. So that makes sense. So I've made a few comments so far about the theme and how it works well in this game. And I really want to reemphasize that comes through really well. Um, I'm, I really like uh, what Dan Farrow has talked about when he says, talks about setting and theme and how we should kind of separate those two things. Um, and that theme is not really so much the artwork and, and, and the names that are used on the board, so much as it is do the mechanisms in the game fit what it is, that the, the story that the game's trying to get through? And do, do you have a feel of, I'm investing in companies in Chicago? And I think that really does come through in this game. I mean, I think the theme really is well supported um, by the mechanics of the game. And, and that to me is important because although it's true that mechanic uh, having a good game with good mechanics and a poor theme is is much better than having a game with a great theme and poor mechanics you don't have to make a choice these days i want both i can get both i can go to so many games where i get great theme and great mechanics and if i'm going to play a heavy game a game that's going to absorb me for two or three hours i want both and this gives me both 
So another question I might put out, and this is more of a question than a definite um, plus or minus, is is this a do you, is this worth thinking about as a gateway to the 18xx or Arkwright? I, mean, I don't think it has to be at all, but I think it's worth <sighs> raising the question. I hate, I hate that question honestly because of the fact that it kind of says that ooh, those are the games, and you need a stepping stone to get to those games. I don't like that premise in and of itself. Number one, whether it's a gateway game to X game. Not even talking about city of the big shoulders here. I'm saying just, I hate that premise that somebody needs a hand holding to get there. That seems to intimate that people are not intelligent and not just able to be able to jump into a game. If they want to, they can, most of us would be able to do that And us being, you know, reasonable people out there. And I especially don't like it in this case because I feel like that is doing a complete and total disservice to this game saying that this is trying to be something that it's not, i.e. the gateway to Arkwright or 18xx. But also, I like the game on its own merit. It doesn't, I, I don't see it as a gateway to that. Could it be used for that? Sure. But that's kind of like saying go fish could be a gateway for tissue. Eh, anything. I, I, I just I, I don't like the premise of that question to begin with. And I don't want to do the disservice that that seems to intimate that it would be doing to this game because I think this is a really damn good game. So, yeah, and I'm with you on that. because I mean, if this is a game to be looked at on its own merits. Um, and I think it's a great game on its own merits. Um, I can see the argument that says that once you've got into this stock manipulation game, you might want to find, oh, I like this I like this stock holding business. Uh, give me more games with stock holding. And that will inevitably lead you to 18xx because it's the major stock holding game. But that's not so much a gateway as it is, oh, I've found a mechanism I've really liked and I want to find other games that, that have a mechanism. Exactly. That I'm on board with, but I don't see this as a gateway to something else. I feel like this can be a destination game in and of itself. So I don't think it needs to be thought of that way. And I don't think it should be just like any other. I, I could make the, the argument that airlines Europe, which is a light family style cross investing game could be a gateway to 18 XX, or it could just be the game. You get yeah. the idea. I don't want to re rehash, but yeah, that just, that's a pet peeve of mine. So sorry. Tangent number two tonight, I guess. <laughs> All right. So on the flip side of things, Things that either we aren't terribly keen on or that we feel there's at least merit in considering on the negative side. Okay, so I'm going to kick off with, um, it's not, I don't know whether you count this as a negative side, but it's definitely a warning. Um, the game, when it was first released, had this kind of odd property of being immediately released with an expansion, which is the... Uh, I've forgotten the name of the expansion, but it comes it, with the Kickstarter. It comes right away, um, and it, you can buy it sort of as, from the very beginning as part of it. And a lot of people would naturally do so. The expansion 
The most important thing in the expansion is a bunch of extra companies. Burden of Destiny is the name of That's the it. expansion. Another line the from the poem, um, and it's natural to say, "Oh, great, cool, an extra bunch of companies. Let's let's throw them in there." However, don't. Um, this would be my recommendation. Um, from play, I initially played by throwing in expansion companies, and we played the first few times, and we ran into some serious problems, and and the problems. Are actually um, they're, they're not really they're not so much problems that are there, but they're problems because we decided to use the expansion companies right off. Uh, I'll throw in a quote here from the designer uh, Raymond Chandler, but he posted on a BGG um, thread just uh, a few days ago. He says the expansion companies are designed to be more powerful than the base companies. They are balanced by expert play and careful investment by the players. New players may find them challenging to go up against. This is intentional and by design. And my conclusion, even before I read that, was when you're starting with this game, don't play the expansion companies. Don't even think about pulling them out until you've reached a point where you're feeling a need to throw some extra spice into the game, which I don't think you're going to need until you've got a, I don't know, I'm thinking 20, 30 plays or so before you're going to get to that point. And they're tempting because they have some really cool stuff and they're so different than the base game ones. However... It's going to possibly swing things one way or the other, uh, which may not make for the most enjoyable experience. And certainly I've seen a couple of people complain about this game of having um, an early runaway winner that you can tell who's going to win the game after the first round or two because they get on a rocket ship. And I have seen that happen with a couple of these expansion companies. And I think that's because the expansion companies – as said by, by Raymond himself, they are designed to be powerful and to be difficult to play against, and you've got to really think through how you're going to work with them. And you don't want to be doing that on your early games. So I, I would very strongly encourage, even if you bought the expansion, don't use it initially. And in fact, we're hearing plenty of reports on the Slack channel of people who are not using expansion companies at all and having a really great time with this game and digging in deep. Yeah, I don't think the game needs... The expansion, honestly, just hard stop right there. Down the road, introduce it, sure. Yeah, I makes sense to me. Then the second thing I'll come out is another thing I would actually check out the game. Um, the game has a set of goals, little goals that say, you know, you get 200 bucks for having the most automation or something like that. And I think all of us have commented that these goals seem to have wandered in from some other game. And they're sitting down on the couch, and then we, nobody really knows them, and they're not talking to anybody, and really, the life would be better without them. And I think everyone I've talked to so far has said, you know, I'm going to take them out of the game. And in fact, the last time I played it, when I introduced it to a couple of friends up in Beverly, I didn't bother including them in the game. I didn't teach them. It would just be extra fluff in the game that just isn't needed. And actually, it's it really annoyingly gets in the way because the amount of money that comes from the goals is really only important in on the margins. It's it's basically, if it's a really tight game, it could swing it. But it also pushes you to do things that are kind of, either you're going to go for the goals and do something silly, frankly, or you're just going to ignore them and it's just the luck of who comes with them. So honestly, I... I don't intend to play with the goals in future. I And they're, they're so easily removed from the game that you just don't miss them at all when they're gone. Because they only come into play for final scoring. Oh, whoever has the most this or did whatever it is. 
I agree 100% the end. I have no interest in playing with them. It makes me think of a a well-known quote from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry that comes up from time to time. It says, uh, this is translated from the French, perfection is attained not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing more to remove. I think we can get a step closer to perfection by removing the goals. Fair enough. I want to reiterate the, the randomness of the building tiles. I don't think it's a make or break. However, that can be alleviated. And um, understand, we're not making justifications and we're not making excuses for anything. We're just offering what, if this is an issue for you, here's a simple solution. You don't like the goals? Take them out. You don't like the runaway leader with the expansion companies? Don't play with them. The building tiles, you don't like the randomness of being dealt them? Draft them. So, point, counterpoint, right? Yep. However, the supply chain. The supply chain. Yeah, Haymarket Square. So, go ahead, sir. So, here I have to explain to explain the point here. We do have to explain a little bit of how it works. So, you have these resources. Different companies need different resources. And there are four kinds of them. And um, at the beginning of the game, you take two of each kind of a resource and you put them in this area called Haymarket Square. Then you have this little conveyor structure where you can buy resources for 10, 20, and 30 bucks. And then there's a future slot, which will be what's coming. When any of the slots empty, the conveyor moves. The future slot will go into the into the 30 slot, and you draw a bunch more cubes out of the bag. When people use cubes as part of the game, they go into Haymarket Square. At any time, you can swap two of the same cube for one of any other cube. From within one company. Um, and the cube has to be available in Haymarket Square, which it might not be early on in the game. Now, as you can see, there's a lot of randomness there as to what cubes are going to appear in which conveyor slots. But there's also a fair bit of manipulation that can be done. If you're the first company and you've got enough money and a suitably um, vicious um, streak, what you do is you drop all the slots in the conveyor to just one um, resource each, looking around to see what people need to make sure that they can't get what they want. And then they're kind of stuck. They can only buy free maximum goods. And what's more, if they buy them, they open up the conveyor to let the next person an advantage that they didn't have. Right. Because they only conveyor when they're completely empty. So a pretty standard play, I would say, would be, especially from the $10 slot, is buy all the cubes but one early on in the game. And it kind of shuts down people's ability to acquire resources, which then to produce, to produce goods, which makes money for their company, pays dividends, etc. And that is the biggest sticking point that most people, it seems, have with this game. Having said that, though, there is some interesting mitigations. I mean, for a start, buildings will give you resources. Also, some of the capital investments will give you buildings. And if you're going to, uh, some resources, I should say. Um, and obviously you should consider making use of those and not relying on the supply chain, particularly if you're not first on the appeal order. Um, Also, make sure you get resources in advance. Don't rely on the fact that you're going to be able to get things next go. Stock them up if you can. 
Um, remember, you can always do that two-for-one exchange. You're going to be, in the first turn, you might have a bit of trickiness, but most of the rest of the game, you'll be okay at getting, there'll be enough stuff in Haymarket Square to go for that. But you have to stock up to be able to do that. So you've got to think in the head of saying, I'm going to put these things down. Those will all mitigate the randomness of that. Um, but you can still get stuck. And in fact, if you want to see a great example of getting stuck, um, look at the second stream that was done where... Chris um, started a company that needed a lot of steel. Um, he hoped he was going to get it through a capital investment, but Jess grabbed that capital investment before him because she also needed steel. He was locked out of steel, and his game was pretty badly hosed. Another way to get yourself out of jail, it may not help you in the current round. Things happen in appeal order. Change the appeal. So if people are taking resources, take appeal so that you can now jump ahead of them in turn order or operating order so that now when you can buy resources, you get to go before them. So again, point counterpoint, not saying it fixes everything in it. There are cases where that can happen. It happens. And on the whole, on this point, I'm still unsure how I feel about the supply chain. It's definitely got sharp edges. Um, for particularly for people starting the game, they could easily get a unpleasant experience that's a bit unfair and, and shows the game off poorly. Um, I don't know in my own mind whether this is a poor design because it's got so many sharp edges or a great design because you've got all these interesting things you can manipulate. And this is a very interesting thing to play with. I've known about this game for a number of years and I've seen it through various iterations in this. The fact that the market only refills when it's completely empty. That was my one big, that was the biggest concern that I had with this game as it went through playtesting, and, and I saw it in the different iterations. Raymond purposely designed it this way. I'm not saying he's wrong. I just have had questions about this for years since before it well before it came out and i still don't know how i feel about it i feel like as long as it's mitigatable then that's fine whether that's choosing a, a, a different starting company so that you're not going to be competing as much as other people in turn order or operating order or other ways that that martin had pointed out that you can mitigate this if you're not able to then that's a problem then that's a design issue more so than a sharp edge issue but i'm not positive yet kind of like you i don't know what where i fall on this because i like my games having sharp elbows i like my games oh wow i screwed that up as long as it was a i screwed that up and i never had a chance type thing right so that uh, so that's I would say those are, to me, the biggest questions in the game. And then there's a bunch of smaller questions, um, a lot of which we're getting from reports from other people that we want to sort of mention um, and also give our take based on our experience. So the first one I want to bring out is reports from other people that stock trashing can get rather tedious. So the idea here of stock trashing is Edward's got a company going, there's three or four shares available to buy. 
I'm going to buy them with the intent of selling them all this same stock round. I'm not investing. I'm only going to buy them to sell them. And the reason I'm doing that is because if I buy four of his shares, then he goes down four slots on the stock market and as a result, loses a lot of value for his company. Which in an 18xx game, you might do that to manipulate operating order because now a company is going to operate later in turn order. However, there's a disconnect in this game. There isn't that direct correlation between operating order and share value because operating order is based on appeal. So it has nothing to do with the value of your shares. So is it then just doing it just to be a douche canoe or to reel in a runaway leader? Eh, I think that's a valid question about that disconnect. Also, there's no legging in this game. So in an 18xx game, you'll if you've ever seen a uh, in most, I, I should say, not all. Some have a 1D. It's very linear, just like it is in City of the Big Shoulders. Others, it's kind of a stair step kind of graph looking uh, stock market. And those ledges where your share marker can fall to. Once it gets onto a ledge, it's ledged, meaning people can sell more shares, but it can only stop or it can only drop to a certain threshold. City of the Big Shoulders doesn't have that because it can just be tanked with uncapped. So yeah. it's a difference, but is it a problem? I don't know. I'll be honest. I I haven't seen a ton of the whole stock price manipulation in this game yet. But I think that comes into play with the group that we have played with, because I know Andy and there are a number of other folks out there that say that is this game more so than anything else. And I feel like that's the exception to the rule because that's the way their group plays it. But I haven't encountered that. I would like to, but I haven't seen that. I see this more as a quote unquote run good companies type game with, you know, the, 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 the worker placement aspect and the whole nine yards. But as it's played, it's hard to rein in leaders as that is. So is there a way to rein them in through that stock trashing or, you know, reeling them back in? I've heard the answer, Jess. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, and another point on the stock trashing is that in an 18xx, you've got more time to recover from stock trashing because you've got more rounds. Five rounds in this game. That's it. You don't have the time to do that. Yeah. In the end, I don't. I mean, stock trashing. I think is a is a is a fun and perfectly reasonable mechanism. The question is, can it get tedious in this game because you kind of feel you have to do it all the time? And that's a report I have heard, but again, I've not seen it. Um, and we'll see how it goes as we get more experience with the game. I guess. Yep, fair enough. I mean, hey, doesn't mean we can't revisit this in a year or two, right? Exactly. Does competition in the sales markets really matter? Like the number of available is the amount of money in there and the number of goods that you can sell. Does it really matter that much between the small difference in numbers? Yeah. I mean, I'm not seeing the competition in the same market really heat things up at this point. And of course, it's also made um, awkward by the fact that 
Um, if you start a company in the same market as an existing company, if that existing company has gone up the appeal track a reasonable distance, you're it's SOL. Be, yeah, you're you're going to have hard job catching up, or, so or it's impossible. Be settle, right? Yeah. yeah, which if there's yeah, so that's something to keep in mind. Again, it has nothing to do with share price; has everything to do with appeal. Because as you move up the appeal track, you're never dropping down the appeal track. Right. It's only other companies raising their appeal to catch you. But if you continually raise your appeal, they're not catching you. Right. And some people have criticized that saying it's not worth starting new companies later on in the game because of the fact that the appeal's behind. But I'm not entirely sure I agree with that because starting a new company and having free shares at a low price also means you can go up the stock track quite quickly. Um, at those lower levels. And you do the math and you realize that actually buying three shares of a low share price company can be more useful than buying one share of a more expensive company. So there's actually a good reason to start a company, even if it can barely operate. Um, because there is a special um, slot on the board that just allows you to take 100 bucks out of the company. And if you do that and your stock price is currently 40 bucks, well, you get a double stock jump right away without actually having to sell a single good. So there's actually things you can do with cheap companies, even late in the game, um, that make them quite an attractive offer, even if you're not going to be able to compete in the shoes market. You're going to hear when we go through the comments uh, that I found uh, on BGG that this game doesn't have any throttle on companies when they're running well outside of limiting resources. There's no, in 18XX, you have obsolescence, you have trains rusting. And so you have to continually be upgrading and continually upgrading and keeping up with the latest and greatest or your share price reflects your inability to do so. There is none of that retarding in this game at all. Is that a problem, though? I So far, I've seen it as it's a different game. Mm. I haven't seen it as, oh, this game's broken because it doesn't have that. Could it be? I guess theoretically, but I don't know. I Again, six plays, and I don't feel that's the case, but... I know there are folks out there that do feel like that is a lack of development, lack of design. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'm not going to say they're 100% wrong either. I just don't know. But I don't see that lacking. I see their point, but I don't know that that's a problem. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if this game requires that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, again, one of these cases, you've got to approach this game as its own game. And yeah, there's no rusting because this isn't an 18xx game. It's a different game with different mechanisms. So, you know, I don't want every game to be brass, even though I love brass. So moving on to scalability. Um, well, you, you flated it too. I flated it three and four. I've enjoyed it at three and four, both. Uh, the game does scale from a standpoint of there are obviously less, uh, partner or worker placement spots because one less player is putting them out. Still the same number of rounds, less companies because less players, but other than that scaling wise, like mechanically. Yeah. I mean, it scales in that way. With a two-player, it is a different game because most games are going to be different at two. Especially um, when you're talking about investing, yes. right? 
And I've, as I said, I've, I've had experience of playing just twice with Cindy, and we found we've really enjoyed it at two, actually. The stock part kind of goes away because there's not really much you can do with stocks with two, but there's a lot of game just in the running the companies and, and you making your worker placement choices well and all that kind of stuff, plenty enough to make an agreeable game. And certainly the chatter on the Slack channel has reinforced that from several people have said, yeah, I played it two, half a dozen, a dozen times, and we're enjoying it. All right. Brings us to comments from BGG. Here we go. Seems like this game is better employed by people who like heavy euros and the idea of 18xx games, but haven't played them or played them maybe in one or two instances. I'd suggest that 1889, 1846, or even something like Greed Inc. are better places for those players than this game. In the end, it just made us all want to play Arkwright again. Yep, it's a it's a different game. It's not 18xx. It's not Arkwright. It just has the eyes. This is beginning to grow on me, and I'm starting to appreciate its rough edges. The fact that the decisions you make early game are critical to get you off to a good start, which is imperative, but the later game decisions are equally as important as to what stocks you buy and what buildings you put out and use. People are getting hung up on the fact that there is no quote-unquote rusting element a la 18xx, but I don't think the game needs it. The fight for production cubes just to produce and the need to be high on the appeal track to sell your product at full price. That's cutthroat enough without having to the need to pay your workers or rust out your factories. I think the game stands on its own without the need of those design elements, and it's a game I'm starting to want to play more and more after each play. If I do have one complaint, it's that after four plays, it's becoming more and more apparent that some companies are better to start early when you have few workers, and some are better to start late. That one decision could be game-breaking in terms of who wins. I have to play more to determine if that's the case. Okay. I don't have enough experience in the game to be able to say, oh, this company is definitely going to be better than this company right now. But- I think it's very contextual as well. I mean, it depends what resources are out in the supply chain. What are other people... What's the, That initial market state is varying because you've got either one slot, two slot, or the X slot in the first market spot. Depending on where they go in the goods lines, that's going to make a big difference as to where you're starting... Uh, targets are going to look like. And then is, what is everybody else doing? I'm making the first choice. You're making the second choice. Shrey's making the third choice. Shrey's decision is going to depend on what we two do. And our decisions is affected by the fact that Shrey is actually the one who's going to start first. So as a result, that all affects our thinking about where we're going to set those initial companies up. The game took me by surprise. I played a friend's copy with hesitation. After the first round, I knew I wanted to own it. All right, there's that. Well, I mean, I played on stream and back the Kickstarter right away. The stock market is not integrated at all. Instead, it's been bolted onto a worker placement resource conversion game, and it just doesn't fit. The two biggest misses for me. Operating order is based on the appeal track rather than share price. The fact that the additional worker is tied to the appeal track just makes it worse. There are so many opportunities to manipulate share price in a stock round, but it doesn't really impact what you can do in the other rounds, so stock purchases become rote until the final stock round. Not sure I agree with that entirely, but I digress. 
Probably more egregious is the lack of technological obsolescence, a.k.a. rusting trains in 18xx. How is this not in this game? Automation is an obvious first step, and then driving technological advances to push the pace would give players a lot more to think about in terms of floating a company. I would argue. Design choice. But moving on. There is no suitcase company possibility here. You can't manipulate treasuries by buying assets from a company. And floating a company late doesn't make much sense because you'll never operate since operating orders tied to something not related to anything a new company can possibly do. Just play Arkwright. What this sounds to me reading this is somebody wants this to be an 18xx. Mm. And it's not trying to be. Yeah. I mean, again, it's got to be approached on its own merits. I feel like this last one kind of sums up what you and I have spent the last, I don't know, hour and a half talking about. A really good worker placement mixed with a lot of elements from economic games manages to create a very distinct feel that carves out its own niche. There you go. City of the Big Shoulders. Thank you and good night. There you go. Seriously, that that sums it up really, really well, I think. Speaking of summaries, sir. Oh, I thought you were just going to stay with that uh, last comment. That really did the summary. <laughs> it really did. So what did I write? Okay, so City of the Big Shoulders is a game about investing in the commercial rise of Chicago. Each round, you decide which companies to invest in and send your partners out to help build up the firms you direct. You need to choose how to allocate your investment dollars between your own companies and those run by opponents. You have to decide whether your company should ensure it has the resources it needs for this round or gamble on the supply chain so that you can hire some salespeople to boost your earnings. You compete for worker placement slots and resource cubes with other people's companies that you have a stake in. The result is an engaging economic stockholding game that plays in three or four hours. Engaging. Its own niche. These are things why I want what I want. Mm. In the games that I play. And I think City of the Big Shoulders does exactly that. It brings aspects of different games and makes it its own game. Kudos on a job well done. Is it without its flaws? No, but my favorite game of all time has flaws. I'm not justifying and I'm not pushing aside anything. I'm just saying that for me, it's an excellent game. And it's a game that I want to enjoy i do enjoy and i look forward to playing it more and more yeah i've played it eight times i want to play it more ultimately that's what matters isn't it yep so as far as a rating goes we rate on a one to six scale one is burn it with fire six is hall of fame everything else is broken down somewhere in between no half numbers there's no halvesies. If it's halvesies, it's one number lower because it didn't make it that bigger number, whatever it is. You being the guest, sir, your honor. Um, I would put it at a five, I think. It's not It's not in that full Hall of Fame set for me. I suspect it probably is not going to quite reach it, um, if only because my Hall of Fame is quite small. Um, it's kind of difficult to fit any more in. I mean, it's not the Hall of Very Good. It's right, the exactly. Hall of Fame, right? But this is definitely a very good game. I'm keen to play it more. Um, I've, I think there are a number of open questions about the game. I'd love to experience the game with groups that play very differently. I'd love to play it with a group like Andy's that does a lot of uh, trashing of companies and a lot more aggressive work on the stock side. Um, and there's things I want to try with it. And that's that's what makes it such an appealing game, right? 
things you want to try, things you want to experience, i.e. you want to play it more. Mm. To me, that sure sounds like a five. So that's what I give it as well. Uh, You know, above a good game, below a Hall of Fame game. It's a game that I absolutely would want to own if I didn't already. And it's a game that when it's offered to be played and I'm available to do so, I jump at the chance. So, yeah, that that seems to fit really well. So City of the Big Shoulders, both me and Martin, give it a five. So well done, Raymond, Emily, and everybody associated over at Parallel Games. And thanks to the folks, Raymond, Emily, and such for uh, providing us with this, uh, the review copy and prototypes uh, along the way uh, Mm. of this game so that we could cover it. All right. So that is City of the Big Shoulders, y'all. Hopefully, uh, Hopefully you enjoyed spending the last couple hours with it, with us. We enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Indeed, yep. A g- good way to spend uh, Thanksgiving Eve, I think. Yeah, well, you, actually creeping into Thanksgiving Day itself. Oh, hey, hey, it's it's after midnight, so happy Thanksgiving, Martin, and everybody out there. Uh, hopefully you have a great holiday. Uh, be nice to one another. Uh, remember what this holiday is about. It's about being grateful for the things that we do have and not about what we don't have. So on that note, I want to say thanks to everybody out there, uh, whether it's listening to the podcast, watching the YouTube videos, uh, supporting the Patreon and and making me my ability to live my dream of doing this full time. I just want to I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful for that. And I'm grateful for the friends that I have to be able to without them. I can't do this either. Grateful for this amazing board game community uh, that just a lot of good eggs out there, I think is a good way to put it. Um, a lot of good people, both inside the industry as well as just inside the hobby, a lot more good than there isn't. So want to try and highlight the positives instead of always, you know, the squeaky wheel, the negatives getting, uh, getting center stage. So yeah, I'm grateful for all that. I'm thankful for all that. Hopefully you guys have a great couple of weeks. We'll be back. Martin and I actually will be back in a couple of weeks with the top 50 of all time of right now. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.